This is the Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tati Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Hirsch Wilson, author of Firefighter Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times. Hirsch is a 30-year veteran volunteer firefighter EMT with the Hondo Fire Department in Santa Fe County, New Mexico. He is also a storyteller committed to explaining how first responding can change how we see and experience our own lives. In his real job, he is a writer, speaker, and consultant. In the past 25 years, Hirsch has worked extensively with leadership teams from a variety of organizations, including Kodak, IBM Japan, Altria, the United States Postal Service, the CIA, Kraft Foods, and Baxter Healthcare, to name a few. He has co-written three national business bestsellers with Larry Wilson, including the award-winning Playing to Win, Choosing Growth Over Fear in Work and in Life. His latest project, based on 30 years as a volunteer firefighter, is helping individuals and organizations see the world as firefighters do and learn how to thrive through traumatic and stressful times. Hirsch attended Colorado College and graduated with a B.A. in English from the University of Minnesota. Prior to becoming a writer and consultant, Hirsch was a dancer and actor. He performed in Canada, Switzerland, and the United States. He also worked as a flight instructor and commercial pilot. Hirsch Wilson, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you, and, and um, I'll begin with our, our uh, usual question to first-time guests, and that is to invite you to uh, cast your mind back to youth and childhood, mm-hmm. and um, if there are any uh, moments, incidents, etc., that in looking in hindsight, you could point to and say, oh, that was kind of a precursor to, in this case, the book that you've written that we're going to be talking about, Firefighter Zen. Um, tell us about that. Sure. I, I think um, I was raised by a very entrepreneurial father. Hmm. Uh, and we, I was oldest of seven. Um, my dad was, was Catholic and, uh, uh, and very Catholic at the time. And I remember um, one of the times we were coming home from a Boy Scout meeting and uh, we were with another kid in the car and we dropped him off. And I had won an award, uh, some kind of present or prize from Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. And uh, we stopped at uh, my friend's house and my dad, and he got out of the car. My dad said, you know what I think you should do? I think it was like a model airplane. And he said, I think you should give that model airplane to Gary. Because Gary, uh, their family doesn't have a whole lot, and I think that would be the right thing to do. Um, so I did, and of course I was bitter. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, I, that story always stuck with me because my dad was the kind of you know not not what I would call a modern Catholic, but a Catholic who believed in service, 
and who believed in uh, uh, making a difference in the world. And that lesson stuck with me. Um, I think the other thing that my dad taught me that goes way back is that um, we're here to, you know, we're here for a reason, we're here for a purpose, um, and, and that you really have got to think more than just having a job. Because sometimes if you just, I mean, sometimes you have to have a job to make money. We're going through that right now where people are losing their jobs. But his belief was always that we're here for a larger purpose. We're here to, uh, you know, and our work should be for a larger purpose. And that stuck, has stuck with me um, in, in kind of a winding way. But yet I've always come back to doing something that was for a greater good. Hmm. So that's interesting. I mean, you, you, you made reference to um, a distinction between Catholics then and Catholics now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's something that you want to expand on a little bit, just to, just to be uh, clear. Sure. I mean, I, I, what, what I read into that remark was um, a kind of, because I grew up Catholic, I was an altar boy, mm. that sort of thing, yeah, me too. And, a boy, and a boy scout. Yeah. And um, uh, although I didn't win any awards in the Boy Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> you were that kind of boy scout. I was that kind yeah, of boy yeah, yeah, scout. Yeah. I did it, yeah. <laughs> I, oh, I have to do a merit badge? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, <clears throat> so it seems to me that that there's been this sort of, an aspect of tribalism that has um, that that seems to be affecting not just Catholicism, but a lot of uh, of the uh, Christian religions yep. in in America. And I'm wondering yep. if that's what you, if that's what you were referring to, kind yeah, of. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think, um, and, and we go through these long cycles of revivalism in this country, um, mm. and I think we're I don't know where we are, but you know, one started in the eighties probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, um, to me, the Catholic church has been captured by a few ideas, um, and have used those ideas that are mostly fear-based and anger-based rather than remembering what Christ really taught. Uh, I mean, I think, um, to me, uh, the teachings of Christ, and I, I'm not a Christian anymore, but he, to me, is one of the great radical thinkers of mm-hmm. all time. Uh, but he taught service, and he taught taking care of those who were less fortunate. He washed the feet of the lepers, right? Um, he, um, you know, he uh, kicked out the money lenders from, from the temple. I mean, all those things were what Christ stood for. Um, and I think what's really appalling, and this is me, it's my personal belief, and mm-hmm. and and whatever. But I think the whole idea of um, the the kind of religion of prosperity. Um, just misses the point of uh, of what Christ stood for, and and yeah. So I, I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay. Don't email well, me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can go ahead and email me. I would probably I would probably uh, go along with uh, the entirety of what you just offered. Yeah. But but um, but it. Uh, the reason it's relevant to our discussion today is that um, in your book, uh, Firefighter Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times, that ideal of service is suffuses the whole book. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and, and you really, um, 
how can I put this? It's like uh, in a lot of we, we interview a lot of folks on that show, and there the and there are many people who talk about being of service. In mm-hmm. many cases, it's service to God, whatever that means mm-hmm. to uh, the individual. Mm-hmm. But but um, but uh, the subtitle "A Field Guide" implies that you have practical things to yes. suggest yeah. about being of service and that's one of the that's one of the features of the book it seems to me mm-hmm. and Absolutely. was was that always as you just in the acknowledgments you describe the book being a process um <laughs> and um oh you're laughing okay <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess yeah. a, a process is one way to describe writing a book. There are other words. <laughs> we'll go with process. Fine. Okay. Well, so, so maybe you can tell us about the quote-unquote process. That uh, you know, what was the inspiration for the book, and um, how did how did you kind of unpack it to organize it in the way that you did? There's a, a great story about about James Joyce. Uh, he was writing Ulysses, um, and his wife came to him, uh, this is apocryphal, but his wife came to him and said, why don't you write something that people will actually read? <laughs> <laughs> and and, and in, in a very, very, very small, tiny way, I had the same conversation with my wife, mm. um, who's a firefighter, and uh, I was writing a novel, which I really loved, and I was very deeply involved. But she looked at me one day and said, why don't you write something that people will actually be interested in? <laughs> And said, what you ought to do is write about the fire service and being a firefighter, because I think that's a really compelling story. And I hadn't even thought about that. So that's how it started. Mm-hmm. And then I think um, at a larger level, um, the being a firefighter had changed both of our lives and our perspective and our worldview so much uh, that when we stepped back, um, we knew that there was a, an important story and important lessons to be taught. And it just it's serendipitous that uh, I, I finished it and it came out uh, in the middle of the pandemic when, you know, the kind of knowledge we talk about is really, really important. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, I, I have to admit, I, 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 because I know something about the publishing world, I was uh, thinking of just this point that, that you mentioned, yeah. that, that you, you couldn't have known that a field guide to thriving in tough times would emerge. Right. In, the toughest yeah. times you could argue yeah. that we've uh, this country has experienced in uh, yeah. uh, many generations. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword because I think the message is really important, but how you sell books in a pandemic, I, no one knows. They keep asking people, "What do you think we should do?" And people just shrug. You know, it's like, but yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that struck me about the just the setup for the book and the stories that you describe about you and your uh, wife getting involved in firefighting mm-hmm. is that. This was volunteer firefighting. Yes. So it's not like this was your career. In fact, right. it was uh, uh, strange to read that you started as a dancer. Yeah. And then, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which which was interesting in its own yeah. right. But um, I, I'm interested in how how it arose for both you and your wife Laura to get into firefighting. Like, what would that's not something that uh, most people just occurs to them that's something to right. do. Right. Right. Well, uh, my wife and I were both dancers uh, in our teens and 20s. Uh, you know, she started when she was 11, 
and I started later on in college when I was 18. What kind so, of dance? What kind of dancing? Ballet, uh, ballet, okay. and musical mm-hmm. theater. Mm-hmm. So um, um, I quit college after two years to become a dancer, and spent um, the next 10 years in what is a, an, an incredibly isolated, intense world um, where you don't know much other than the studio and the theater uh, and your classes every day. And that's your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I, you know, I, I had the opportunity to dance in Canada and in, in Switzerland and in the United States. Uh, I met Lori and we were just kind of finishing up our dance careers, but like all dancers, you have, you, all you think about is dance. You don't think about the future. You think life is going to go on forever. Right. But it comes to an abrupt halt when you're in your late 20s and 30s and early 30s because you get you get too old and your body falls apart mm-hmm. so when I, I was about 30 and Lori was 25 uh, we both decided to leave dance um, it's, it was still our worldview um, and I came back and I fell in love with uh, an old thing I'd done I'd been a, uh, a flight student when I was young and so I got my commercial license and my flight instructor license and started to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for uh, five or six years. And then we moved out to New Mexico to, for work. We moved to Santa Fe, from Minneapolis to Santa Fe. And Lori went to work for a conference center outside of Santa Fe, about an hour outside of Santa Fe, uh, where she was, just a, she was a customer service person. And what happened is one day a woman, a guest, fell and broke her ankle. And no one there at the conference center had any first aid training. They didn't know what to do. All they could do was call an ambulance. And it wasn't like a 911 call because there was no 911. You had to call the local fire department, and they had to call other members to come and get the ambulance and come pick her up, which they did and took her to the hospital. But Lori was determined that that would never happen again. So she signed up for uh, an emergency medical technician class, uh, which is about six months long. And she took the whole class. And at the end of the class, the instructor, who was a firefighter, said, you know, in order to keep your skills up, because there are a lot of skills involved in being an EMT, why don't you join a fire department so you can get some practice and go on calls? Hmm. So what Lori heard was that we both should join. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she came home and, and told me that we were joining a fire department. And I thought she was out of her mind. I had never heard of a volunteer fire department. I, I did not see myself as someone with an axe breaking down doors. I had a thing about blood and gore. Uh, you know, I just, I had my, my, the male side of my family doesn't deal well with blood. Um, and so I just said, you're, out, you're crazy. You're out of mind. But she dragged me to a, a first meeting and uh, we went to the meeting and it was a group of people that were um, just from every walk in life. There was a, uh, Contractors, and it's typical Santa Fe, contractors, artists, writers, uh, business people, a federal judge, um, and they all joined together uh, and became this volunteer fire department that they started in 1974. So we walked into the meeting, and it was in the bay where all the trucks are, and they sat around a table, and and they started passing on a picture uh, as they talked. And the picture was of an accident, an unfortunate accident that happened the week before, a fatality and there was a man in the car, uh, the, the victim, uh, with a broken neck. Hmm. So, you know, they passed the picture around. And this is kind of gallows, dark fire department humor. Um, and everybody looked at it. Lori was really interested in the kind of the mechanics of what happened and 
how he broke his neck, da 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 da. You know, and then he handed it to me, and I passed out. <laughs> <laughs> Auspicious and, beginning, right? <laughs> Auspicious beginning. You know, the blood drained from my head, and I had to leave. And then Lori came and grabbed me and said, maybe you can just learn how to run the fire trucks and you don't have to see any of this. So, so that was our introduction. And she kept me going for a couple of months. And then I got, I, you know, I had the feeling that this was something that was really missing from my life. We had, a, we had a great life. Uh, you know, we had been married for five, six years and we both had jobs and everything was good, but there was always something missing. And that goes back to uh, the Catholicism piece that, we're here mm -hmm. to give back. We're here mm -hmm. to take care of others. And so the fire department really became my answer to that. Being a volunteer firefighter was how, you know, it was like the, 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 the you know, kind of the gears of the universe clicked. So, yeah, this is how I'm going to give back. Got it. So I stuck with it. You know, we both stuck with it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to uh, do a little uh, excursion for, for just a second because one of the things that I noticed you have a lot of uh, quotations, uh, mm -hmm. ch chapter headings, yep. and and they they are uh, widely sourced from yep. many, <laughs> many, yep. and, and I, I, that's 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 something I I admired about it yeah. and enjoy. Yeah. Uh, it struck me that you either must be widely read. Or you get a lot of good advice from friends <laughs> about quotes that might be useful, right. yeah. or you or you have a really good editor, or um, or you've you've explored philosophical questions and um, uh, been doing that for a while. Can you can you outline if I have any clue sure. if, if I'm sure. right at all? Yeah, I have a 120-page journal that I've had since um, I was in my 20s of things that I've read that I really liked. Mm. And I started writing them down uh, because they were North Stars um, and have kept that journal. So most of the, um, the stuff, the quotes come from that. Um, okay. And then, you know, I'm always alert. I mean, like the Mike Tyson quote about, you know, everybody has a plan until they get in the ring and get punched in the mouth. I mean, I just heard him say that on ESPN, right? So, and I wrote that down immediately. So, so that it's been that, and um, we're a reading family. Okay. Uh, Lori is the most intense, prolific reader I've ever met in my life, and so I try to keep up with her. It's a little competition. So, do, so does that mean that um, uh, you are you discuss the stuff that you that you've uh, both read or something no. like that? Or? No. Okay. We 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 read entirely entirely different genres. So. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Because I, because I, because I, I was leading to a question. So so you have, as uh, I think I, I mentioned, a lot of disparate sourced mm -hmm. quotes, and um, and I'm wondering if you know if you've done, like like you said, now you don't consider yourself to be a Catholic. Uh, um, but um, but there's a lot of insights from different spiritual traditions mm -hmm. that that you have in the book, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, et, uh, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. And I'm wondering if that was a deliberate choice, and or does it reflect um, explorations that you've done um, with religious spiritual traditions uh, outside yeah. your Catholic. Uh, home base. I think it's a little both. I feel comfortable in the wheelhouse of uh, of kind of 
the questions about why. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think, um, and a lot of that has to do with on the on the, and I, I talk about it in the book. It's like uh, something happens, um, and we have a natural human craving to ask why. Why did this happen? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's simple. And one of the examples I gave in the book is a woman, uh, an artist, uh, jewelist, uh, she was a, uh, made jewelry. She left a magnifying glass focused on paper on oh, her desk. Right. The sun shines through and caught the, you know, the paper on fire. And so that, you know, I went to that, we put it out, not a big deal. So the answer to that question is simply physics. Why did it happen is physics. Um, but sometimes, like after a horrific accident, um, we had this one accident, and it was this woman who was uh, taught in a Catholic school. She would go to Mexico uh, a couple times a year to bring supplies down to Mexico. I mean, she was an amazing lady, just an amazing lady. And then driving back to Santa Fe, she was in a rollover and killed. Um, and so you ask, well, why did that happen? Right. People ask, why did that happen? And I I think um, as a firefighter, you're asked that kind of question constantly. Mm. Um, And by by people often in uh, um, emotional uh, distress. Absolutely. And it's not something you're taught in any fire academy. Right. That Mm -hmm. answer, because those are we skirt those kinds of questions. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a society. We skirt those kind of questions. So. but I think that I think it's it's important um, to understand uh, the why and why things happen and to come up with a, an explanatory for a, a reason that makes sense to you. So I, you know, I have dealt with this forever, and I think so. A lot of the spiritual stuff uh, comes from that question. Hmm. And you and you and it sounds like you've done reading in lots of different. Uh, spiritual traditions yes. to be able to reference the yes. answers yes. from those traditions. Right. I, I think one of the first books after a bad accident a long time ago was Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Yeah. Mm-hmm. By, right, right. Yes. Uh, that was really helpful. Uh, and it just led to more of an explanation, or, or um, not an explanation, but uh, a, um, a desire to ask, continually ask the question and look at other traditions answers yeah you described in uh, I think the latter part of the book uh, uh, how you have to deal with in the process of dealing with a really bad um, uh, situation where uh, someone loses their life mm-hmm. and you carry that and I, I you had kind of an intervention a, a soft intervention a breakfast uh, right. uh, with the I think it was the fire chief Dan right? my, my yeah, chief yeah yeah, yeah. and and I was struck by his discussion about death and uh, mm-hmm. the, the discussion of that uh, a framework or a way to look at that is that uh, you have situations where people really want to die mm-hmm. and you can do one intervention and uh, uh, you put off the fact that they're going to die and right. uh, you do something else and you do three things and it doesn't matter. It's just, right. it, they seem to be determined to die. And other people, you know, they're the ones for whom your job is to, uh, you know, help them survive, who right. actually want to survive. Right. And, and that was, uh, that made an impression on me because uh, it, it was very, a very grounded kind of way of, 
just being present to the reality of death. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, one of my, uh, the doctors in our local hospital who was, she's a great doctor, and she, and she walked me through early in my career that some people, it's, it's as if they want to die, and, and there's nothing we can do to help them. Um, and our job, our job is, you know, other people can grieve, other, other people can get emotional about it, but our job is to do the best we can and then move on to the next person who maybe doesn't want to die. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we have to be ready for that. And that's, that was Dan's message that our job is, um, as firefighters is to be ready to help um, the people who don't want to die and to be there for them. Um, and it's hard. It's, it sounds simple. The words sound simple, but it's, it's really difficult. Well, you, you describe a, a delicate balance that you found that isn't necessarily always reflected in every firefighter between being present and compassionate to the situation and boxing it off. Yeah. And I'm wondering yeah. if you could talk about that a little bit, because I, yeah. I thought that yeah. was a, a, an especially nuanced part of the discussion. Yeah. And I think it's important for now because I think what, what we've been taught, especially as men, um, um, but I think more prevalent in our society is to kind of box off grief, right? To box off bad, don't talk about it, don't feel, don't, uh, you know, don't be sad, all those kinds of things. And you can just listen to our culture tell us that. So, um, and that's especially true with firefighters. Um, so, we, you know, it's going way back, firefighters are taught to man up, to, you know, macho through, um, to be tough, right? To not, and to not let anything get to them. And, and the game we played was nothing gets to me, right? Uh, we'll go back to the station and we'll joke around. Um, clearly, that does not work. I just want to make that point. That doesn't work. Um, and my evidence for that, my um, kind of statistical evidence is that in the general population, like 3% of people have PTSD. In firefighters, it's like 30%. Hmm. Um, we we lose more firefighters to suicide now than we really? do to line of duty deaths. Whoa! Right? Yeah, so I had no idea. Yeah, so uh, we're coming to grips with the fact that we have to deal with the emotional trauma of firefighters. You uh, first by talking about it and admitting that it's there, um, and not and not trying to stuff it back, you know, back in the bottle. And my two anecdotes about this are, um, you know, I, I, I live and work with firefighters who have been firefighters for decades. Um, and one of them was this tough guy who was a great firefighter, just an awesome firefighter. And he, once at a bad call, he just put his hand on my shoulder and said, you know, I, I don't know what you're feeling, but I'm, I'm sorry you're feeling that. I mean, that's all he had. Um, but then 10 years later, we were on a call, and it was a cardiac arrest. And he just, he said, he walked out and said, I just can't take any more death. I just can't see another dead person, right? And it just kind of cascaded uh, after that. He just wouldn't go on calls. He just couldn't handle it anymore. I mean, and that, that's the wrong word, because he had done such strong work for so long. But finally, his, his, his cup was full. Mm-hmm. Um, and another story that always gets to me is we had... Um, we had a crash where some kids were killed 
and we worked the scene and we all did a good job. Um, and everybody seemed fine, right? We debriefed it. We talked about it, made sure everybody was okay. And then I think almost eight years later, one of the firefighters uh, that had been there, we were standing in the bay at night. We had just come back from a not a big deal call. Uh, and under the kind of fluorescent lights of the station, he just turned to me, this is eight years later, and said, you know, I swear to God, I thought those kids were just sleeping. Just out of the blue. Because they, they, looked, they looked fine, right? And, and you get that, that no matter how strong or tough or uh, you think you are, that this stuff inhabits our minds. It's, it's, we talk about there's a movie reel in our mind going through all this stuff. And sometimes it just starts playing. Uh, and, and we have to learn, we have to learn to um, help each other through that. And I think right now with the pandemic, I think lots of people are having that, that same kind of sense of grief. Uh, and, you know, we all had our calendars in March and we threw them away because what can you plan? And I think people are grieving now and they're in pain. And, and to an extent, society teaches us to kind of stuff it. And you can't stuff it. You just can't. You got to work. You got to work through it. You got to talk about it. You got to bring it to the surface, and um, and that's how we solve that problem. And that's that's one of the ways that we we deal with it. Well, you're you're bringing up several points, or at least several points are coming up for me as I as I just heard you describe this um, point, and and um, and one of them is um, you knew immediately what your fellow firefighter was talking about eight years after mm-hmm. this, this horrible uh, right. Uh, right. car crash. And, um, and that then connects to the point that you make in the book. And I, um, and I have anthropological training that actually focused on, you know, uh, uh, archaeological contexts of of uh, hunter gatherers and stuff like that. So you have a, a quite uh, nice discussion of what it's like, of how how a group of individuals who work together become, you know, a band of sisters and brothers, right? Essentially, yep. And that's uh, and and. And so it's, it's like a tribe, yep. you know, our, our, understand, our, our common understanding of, of what, what a tribal existence would be and how, how, how powerful, um, powerfully present you are for each other, um, as illustrated by the story that you just told. Mm-hmm. You knew immediately what this guy mm-hmm. was talking about. By the way, that, you know... In your description in the book of that um, that accident, uh, at the end or towards the end of that, um, uh, it was the first my first occasion when reading the book to sort of tear up because it was the thing about the yeah. uh, the um, uh, wanting to treat the bodies of these three teenagers in the back seat of a car as if they were still asleep. Right, and be able right. to tell the parents that, yeah, and that was uh, it was very touching. Yeah, hard to um, hard to. It was not imp- not possible for me to pass it by. Right. Yeah. yeah. And 
and and there and but you're but but what I just heard you saying is that is that when you even though you put things in a box we, we're taught to put things in a box eventually the box opens for for no discernible reason perhaps yeah and Absolutely. so and so that's part of I think what what your field notes um, th- scattered throughout the book, especially mm-hmm. the later part of the book, um, is about. So, so talk about your your, um, if you will, about your your understanding of what you were doing with these. You can describe the field notes in general from your sure. perspective, but also then what what you intended them to be for people. I think um, as a firefighter, um, you need to learn some mental discipline. I mean, that we t- we're in fire academy in school. Uh, we are taught the mechanics. We're taught how to run an engine, how to put out a fire, how to be an EMT, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But what's missing and what you have to learn on your own is kind of the mental discipline to handle the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is things like, uh, I, I talk about um, staying inside the hula hoop, for example. Uh, and what that means to us, when you go to a command school, um, one of the, and, you, and what they do is they put you in, inside a hula hoop. You're standing on the ground in a hula hoop at a, at a simulated scene. Uh, and everybody's yelling. Everybody's yelling at you to come here. You've got to do this. This person over here is dying, right? Uh, there's a big fire. And you have to learn to stand inside the hula hoop uh, and see the whole scene, see the entire picture before you act. Uh, because if, if you just dive in, you'll miss something for sure. Um, and, you, and you might miss um, the example we use is you go to a car accident. There's a car on the road. Everybody runs to that car that's all smashed up, and they miss the tire tracks that go off in the snow off the cliff because you get, you get mm-hmm. so instantly involved. So it's it, those kinds of mental things that we learn as firefighters that extrapolate, that kind of carry over to what, how we can use them in life. Mm. And, the, and um, when something bad happens, um, when something, I mean, it can be as simple as, as when your boss at the end of the day says, I need to talk to you <laughs> before you leave the office. It's like taking a minute to stay inside the hula hoop, not panic, right? Not go crazy, but to kind of think rationally through what it might be about and not make stuff up. So it's that kind of stuff that, um, that firefighters learn. And then, and that we can use. You mentioned the uh, 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 the self talk and the importance of another piece of discipline here. Oh yeah, that, that resonates with you know some of the outcomes described in meditation practices. That mm-hmm. being able to be present to and aware of self talk and mm-hmm. not jump into it or not get lost in it, it seems yep. like another level of staying in the hula hoop. It's yep. it's just that the hula hoop in this case is inside one's skull. Right. So I, I think you think about it um, is that we have a narration going on in our brain constantly telling us what's happening, why it's happening, right? It's not based in reality at all, right? It's just this constant narration voice. Um, and it is often, it's very security-based. It's very fear-based, right? Um, we used to teach that the, the first thing that, uh, you know, because we've, what, we've been humans for, what, two and a half million years or whatever. But the, the first thing we think about is, can I eat it or is it going to eat me? 
<laughs> and that's at top of mind, and it still is. I mean, we, that's just how that's how our brains work. Um, we, it's probably more sophisticated now, but I think the first thing is to be able to recognize the fact that we're narrating our life, our life, and and it's not rational. And second, to be able to intervene, which is the hardest part, to intervene on that and to be able to kind of judge things from a more rational uh, point of view than just kind of our subjective point of view. Uh, and so the, the tool we use is called Stop, Challenge, and Choose. And this, I have to say, comes from uh, Dr. Maxi Maltzby, who uh, was a mentor of mine and a really well-regarded psychiatrist uh, and, and worked in the field of rational behavioral therapy. But Stop, Challenge, and Choose is like, anytime you feel something negative, stop, right? Uh, just stop, breathe. Um, and then uh, uh, it's uh, um, challenge your thinking. Uh, and the example, I mean, the example in the office is a great thing. My boss just asked to see me at the end of the day. Well, the first thing you're going to think about, he's going to fire me, right? I'm about to be fired. Well, and, 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 if I, and then the voice goes, because it never stops there. If I'm, going to be, if I'm fired, uh, I'm going to not have a job. I'm going to have to go home and tell my husband or my wife that I've been fired. Oh, my God, she's going to, you know, or he's going to divorce me. Um, I'm going to end up on the street. And I'm going to die. <laughs> and that just <laughs> happens, right? Happens in our And so our first thing is to stop, challenge the irrational narrative that's going on in our heads, right? What is really going, what is the voice telling you? Uh, and then choose a, you know, choose a, a more rational narrative, right? What's realistic? What's the worst that could happen? Uh, what's the best that could happen? And what's most realistic? And to kind of use that kind of intervention all the time. It takes some practice, but you can do it in two minutes and it, it will help you calm down, be more rational and be more creative. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm getting all panicked. Go ahead. Well, one, one thing that um, I learned from my own spiritual teacher was this idea that the, the self-talk, uh, which he affectionately called the android, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, will typically shut down when there's stress. And mm -hmm. And I was in, I'm interested in your perspective on that because there's a number of stories in the book um, about when the firefighter gets incredibly focused, there's a problem that has to be solved. And he's so focused that in some cases, some people don't even realize they're working on someone that they know in an emergency yeah. situation. Yeah, and yeah, that, that, that was striking. Yeah, 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 it, yeah that, that just that called up to me that 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 adage that, you know, in a way, stress helps to shut down uh that mind for yep. for doing the work and yep. in, in some way in some ways you don't even have to have training for that that just happens that we're yep. kind of wired that way yep um and then the challenge of course is that when the stress subsides then if you don't have any sort of discipline around what that mind does then the repercussions are the things yep. that you were just talking about earlier yep. but i'm interested in just your perspective on how you function in the stress of that of the situation and because uh, it, it seems like you get into a different place than the ordinary human mind uh, finds yeah. itself most of the time yeah we we talk about it as we turn the switch on um and and uh, that is when we're going to assume we know it's bad 
where we <clears throat> become incredibly focused. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with adrenaline. And, and I, I call it saint adrenaline, saint adrenaline uh, because it does an enormous amount of good things, but it's a double-edged sword. So uh, adrenaline uh, keeps us, makes us very focused. Everything is very black and white, right? Um, we, we, you can do things when you're adrenalized that you can't do normally. Um, and I remember, I remember once, and I, I don't even remember, I had to be told what happened, but we had a burning car, uh, fully involved, a girl chopped underneath the car, and three of us lifted the car off her. But I don't remember that happening, no? And I had to be told by the paramedic who said, oh my God, look what you guys did. But you, we were so focused and in the moment uh, that it's, it's like we have, had no memory of it. So adrenaline does that. Uh, it helps us stay, stay very, very focused on, on what we have to do. The bad side of adrenaline is that there's an after effect. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it produces stress hormones. Um, it causes you not to sleep. Um, it causes you to be irritable and you can't, and uh, some people get addicted to adrenaline. Um, like it's, it's like epinephrine, you know I mean? Just, just, just go for it. Um, and, uh, and some people get, um, they, they always have to be living an adrenalized life and that, and that can end badly. That can end well, badly. yeah, but it also seems in addition to all that, it seems to me that your point about the being in the hula hoop, which is your, the metaphor for, um, being able to stop and pay attention to the entire context mm -hmm. as opposed to whatever object of attention you might focus on in the adrenalized state. Um, and that's um, obviously crucial, crucial yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are two parts. Um, the, the, the incident commander uh, who's in charge of the whole thing. Right. Mm -hmm. and, it, and like we're in charge of our lives. That person, uh, he or she has to be calm, cannot be adrenalized, have to see the whole picture, mm -hmm. right? But when you're given assignment as a firefighter, like you got that patient or I need you to take that side of the house, that's a time to be highly focused and adrenalized. Um, okay. And know that that commander has got your back, right? Is, uh, and we usually have a safety officer at every scene who's going to make sure you're doing things safely. But your job is really to, to make an attack or work on a patient. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's so, but this, um, this whole discussion, it's, it seems to me, is um, completely relatable to so many spiritual practices from many mm -hmm. different spiritual traditions. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that, that I appreciated. And further, um, uh, this point about really being about being super practical about seeing what's actually present mm -hmm. and not your projection mm -hmm. about what might be present and how you know um and miss the the as you said as you said a moment ago the uh the tire tracks off the cliff or something like right. that right it's really important so um but that struck me as, as one of the things I wasn't necessarily expecting from the book was mm -hmm. how, especially in the, I'd say the first third or first half of the book, you really have a, a focused, you, fo in a, you keep returning to this point about how um, 
you know, there's a set of facts and the, and, and the crucial thing is to be able to see those facts, mm -hmm. acknowledge what they, what actions they, um, um, will guide you to do to be of service. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, um, that's a little different. That feels a little different, although it's not, I, I've, you know, you, you could argue that the Dhammapada, uh, the Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist, uh, effort, you know, short little collection of aphorisms, um, makes some similar points, but it's still not, not a, it's not a common thing you see in health self-help books or something like mm -hmm. that these days mm -hmm. do, you have, do you have any comment to make about um i mean it's clearly part of part of this firefighter not just training but self-training as you're describing it mm -hmm. um yeah here's an example um when we're dispatched to a call we've learned not to trust what the dispatcher says mm -hmm. um because i've been to so, and it's not the dispatcher's fault. Right. Because they're getting information from a panicked person. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yes. And so we've learned to uh, keep our eyes open and see what's in front of us rather than um, depend on saying what, what the dispatcher says is the truth. Uh, we went, we were dispatched to a cardiac arrest uh, and we got there. And um, the guy was breathing, and he was actually talking to us. So two of us kind of settled down. And then a paramedic came roaring through the door, uh, saying, my patient, my patient. And he, had, he was just ready to run a code, right? And there was no code, because he went in with that kind of with blinders on, saying, this is what we were told, and, and it wasn't. So we, we learned to be skeptical. We learned to be fact-based. You learn to try and observe what's going on. The, the way I think about that is um, it, the way we work, our brains work, is we are masters at making stuff up. <laughs> we, have, we have degrees from MSU, Making Stuff Up University. <laughs> right? Okay. And, and, um, and you know, some, what we make up for most people is close enough to reality so we can muddle through, right? But, but whether you take it from a physics point of view or a perception point of view uh, or a belief point of view, we are not seeing reality. You know? we, we don't grasp reality. Um, and I think the best way to do this is try to have someone explain time to you, right? What time is. And, and you find out we're we are just clueless about what what reality really is. Uh, so what does that mean? It means that in order to really thrive in the world, we have to do arduous work at trying to see what's really so in our own lives uh, and, and, and around us. Because we just, our brains are designed to make stuff up, to generalize, and to move on. And, and you know, part of the problems we, 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 with the caste system we have in this country is that we just generalize. We just assume we start as soon as we start thinking about groups of people we're making stuff up right we're, it's not based in reality it's not based in fact we're making stuff up but that that's how our brain is designed right our brain is not designed as a rational truth-telling organism or organ it is designed to get us through life 
as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. So um, controlling that and understanding that and having the self-discipline every day to ask yourself, what am I making up? What am I making up here is really, really important. And I think that's, go ahead. Well, I, I, am, I just appreciate that, uh, uh, the clarity about that. Uh, and, and it's like that, as Rob was saying, that's, that's, that's a wisdom that's found in many, many spiritual traditions and practices, but it's, you're putting it in a, uh, a language which I think is accessible to everybody. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah. and one of the things that came up for me in relation to that is the function that necessity plays. Mm-hmm. So necessity in a way is like a, a, a large force. <clears throat> and it seems to me that as a firefighter, you choose to put yourself, uh, in the way of necessity. And yet that necessity seems to me to also enforce or require of you the kind of discipline that you're describing. I'm I'm interested in your thoughts about necessity because uh, I, when you describe scenes and the anecdotes in the book, it seems like the the force of necessity is making itself present. Yeah. um, To me, I, I think about it as, an interior life and an exterior life. Um, and, and in terms of spiritual tradition, I think, and, and maybe it's because I'm, Amer- I'm an American or maybe because I'm a firefighter, but I see the spiritual, my spiritual tradition is doing things that are practical mm-hmm. and that help others, right? And, 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 and responding to necessity, um, and, and seeing it, first of all, because we're often blind to it, but, but, but actively seeing things that have to be done. Um, and in, in doing that and in helping others is how um, it's kind of, you know, firefighters, they're not, they're not rabbis, they're not priests, they're not philosophers. They are very practical people, right? They're the ones who can, who can fix trucks and, and, and do things. And they amaze me because I grew up as a dancer. I just like, I have no, none of those skills. Um, but, but to, to be, they're, they're practical, they're compassionate, and, they're, and when they see a problem, they want to solve it. It's just, it's just kind of in their DNA. Well, um, <clears throat> there were a number of uh, good, uh, good lines in the book, but uh, one of them that, that I actually wrote down because I wanted to ask you about it or actually express my admiration for it because I hadn't thought of it in quite this way. There's a lot of people that we interview on this podcast um, who talk about compassion. Mm. And you have a line on page 196, uh, which I'll quote, the action of compassion, and action is uh, italicized, the action of compassion releases powerful feelings of connection, empathy, satisfaction, and joy. So another part of the book, uh, an important part of the book that you um, focus more on later I think um, in the book is is the um, is the way in which um, being of service creates a healthier emotional life than a lot of people experience. You know, the, people have the idea that compassion. I think they have this idea that compassion means you're sitting on a cushion and mm. beaming out, beaming mm. out 
generous thoughts or something mm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that that's wrong, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. image or that idea or, or practice, but um, the practicality of compassion seems to me to be a thread running through Firefighter Zen. Talk about yes. that, if you will. Um, absolutely. I think, and I go back to, you know, the Christian spiritual tradition. Uh, Christ washed the feet of lepers, as the story is told. Right. He, he took action. He didn't sit in the temple, right? He didn't gather his apostles constantly and talk. He went out and did things. Um, and that was always a very impactful story to me. Uh, as a firefighter, well, no, just as a human being, I think, I think um, there's a difference between thinking you're a compassionate person, being empathic, and then going out and actually helping. There's a, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's of a different order. And how it makes you feel, how it, how it, um, it, it makes you feel on, on the planet, it's a completely different, different feeling. It is a joyful feeling. It is, and, and I think the way I think about it is, um, on a normal day, we are so obsessed with ourselves. We are just constantly obsessing about ourselves, day in and day out. Am I too short? What's my hair like? Am I, am I wearing cool clothes? <laughs> is my wife going to like me today? I mean, all that stuff is constantly going on. Our narrative is very self-involved. But when you step in to help somebody, right, whether it's simply opening the door for them or, uh, or helping, letting somebody get, you know, pull in front of you in traffic, all those kind of little things, in that moment, we're not self-obsessed. In that moment, we are thinking of someone else. And that is a powerful uh, expression of kindness, of empathy, of love. And it changes how you feel. It changes how you feel uh, because we're caring about someone else. And I think it's the most, probably the most powerful emotion as human beings we can experience is that when we make the shift from me to we, when you make that shift from it's all about me to I'm here to help somebody else, um, and I think, unfortunately, we live in a highly self-absorbed society. We have an incredibly self-absorbed president. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and you compare him to Jimmy Carter, for example, um, who had, in his 90s is still working for Habitat for Humanity. Yeah. Um, and, and part of the, the fault in the kind of individualistic approach that we've all grown up with is that we, we lose kind of, un, it's like a, um, an unintended consequence. We lose that understanding that taking care of others is why we're here, right? Well, I, I'm gonna, I'll jump in with another quote that I really sure. liked on page 205. It's the first couple of sentences after your little uh, subheading, how can I help? And you write that the question, how can I help? is my favorite meditation and prayer. It's answered by the most essential spiritual shift anyone can experience. And, I th- and that's what you're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Me. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and, and so that, I mean, that, that's, it's an interesting point here because, you know, we generally speak to people who are actually explicitly telling people how to... Um, 
how to manifest a more generous, compassionate spiritual life, because that's that's their practice and and so forth, and um, and and you're not afraid of using that language, but you're framing it in this uh, in this way that creates it as something an action in the world yeah. and that's 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 the key point that that, that yeah. i think we're talking around here yeah absolutely um and i have no uh i think everybody comes to their own spiritual practice my favorite quote is that spiritual practices are different poems about the same experience mm. um mm. but uh, my bias is towards helping people um and, and firefighters learn two things. They learn there's tremendous suffering. There's tremendous suffering in the world. Even in our 21st century white uh, first world America, um, there's suffering. Buddha said life is suffering. Well, one of the, um, to follow up on that, one of the things that I appreciated about the book is um, you have you have a, you have stories about um, you know pretty horrific um, circumstances that people find themselves in you know, and you know accidents and fires and whatnot, but you also have stories about people who are uh, um, you know they call nine one one and it's kind of like they just need to talk to somebody or to somebody. Oh, yeah. Please. Someone to clean the oven. Or someone to clean the, the oven. oven. Yeah. That's a great yeah. story in the book. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, uh, um, and, and I, I say this about the police also, is that we've been put in the fort- an unfortunate situation of being the, the first line of mental health yeah. uh, in the country. Uh, and um, and it, that's just becoming worse. Um, and... I, I don't, you know, the, I know the, you know, it's difficult for the police. I mean, I think they have the hardest job in the world. It is so such a hard job. Um, and they're dealing with, with um, substance abuse and mental illness and anger day in and day out. And firefighters, too. Um, and so I, I think, um, I think dealing with, you know, being there and being kind and being helpful um, is still our job. Uh, not being judgmental, um, understanding that people are in pain and that usually behind anger is fear and pain. And, if, and, and, and going into the world with that knowledge really makes, is, this, is again, uh, kind of a, an example of, of taking action in the world in terms of spiritual practice. And I think if more of us thought of our, our lives outside of, of kind of the internal practice, but our, our lives being a spiritual practice in how we act in the world, mm-hmm. it'd, be a, it'd be a much more interesting and compassionate place. Well, you also uh, d- draw a distinction that I think may have be helpful in framing this between happiness and joy. Mm. And, you know, I think we sometimes confuse the pursuit of happiness um, oh, yeah. with, with the attainment of joy. And may, yeah. Maybe you could talk about that distinction a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I think we're trained as Americans, training is the right word, that uh, happiness is a function of material wealth, material possessions, uh, 
of you know, getting a degree, great job, great house. Uh, I taught a class <coughs> for seniors, <coughs> high school seniors, uh, about fulfillment. And um, one, I never, I'll never forget this. One girl wrote this essay. She said, so let me understand that my parents pay for me to go this, to this uh, college prep school so that I can get into a great college, so that I can get a great job, so that I can have kids and send them to a great prep school so that they can get into a great college. What is the point, right? And I think she nailed it. I mean, we get on this train of thinking that this is what our lives are supposed to be, right? Uh, and, and happiness on that train is like you, you get a new car, right? And we're told that, oh, that should make you so happy. And, and a couple of weeks later, if you're like us, the new car is filled with soccer socks and old French fries, right? And it's no longer new. Um, and that, and that, that happiness is very temporary, right? Um, and and, and you know, my, my dad used to tell me when I would want a new car or something, he said, so, so what do you really want, right? Do you want the car? Uh, or do you want the you want the, the the feeling of having a new car, right? One costs a lot of money. The feeling about having a good car you can have, and it's it's free, right? Um, so so uh, and that really stuck with me. Um, but so that's that's happiness. It's 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 transactional. It doesn't last very long. Um, joy. I just make the distinction in the book that joy is this deeper. Uh, understanding and and feeling that that you're making a difference in the world um, that your life has meaning and purpose and we don't talk about that enough we don't talk about we're not um, uh, Joseph Campbell said um, you know life has no meaning we have to create the meaning for ourselves right we have to create the meaning for ourselves and it's in the creation of that meaning that I'm here to do important work that I'm here to other, to help other people that creates joy, this deeper, most, more profound sense that I'm making a difference in the world. And that's how I, I kind of distinguish the two. And clearly, what the book is about is, is helping people find that deeper sense of joy. So, um, so one of the things, one of the points you, you make, um, at one point there's an anecdote about that um, you've done some call and then you three guys, there's you and two other guys, I guess, get into uh, the truck. And, um, and I, and you all are, and you all sort of spontaneously, this must be that tribal group think hap, thing hap, happening. Mm. You all spontaneously reflect on the fact that you're all in your sixties. Oh yeah. And, um, okay. um, and being 67 myself, um, uh, I look, I look at my father's life mm. after he retired. It's mm. like, you know, in that generation it's in America, it seemed to me, at least for guys, um, service was having a job or, or maybe a career. Sure. Uh, or, but but um, raising, raising a family, a family yep. all that stuff. Yep. And once that was over... The idea of being serve, of service didn't compute to my dad. I mean, yeah. I, you know, it was it, and it was a holdover. To be fair, from a period when people didn't live as long. Yep. 
Yep. And and um, but now, and this story that you know uh, I'm just referring to from your book uh, points to the fact that things are different now. Mm-hmm. And and I'm wondering if you if you, I mean, it, obviously you have the experience of seeing seeing that things are different now in the in this firefighter world do you think that's that it's going beyond just this um sub subset of firefighters or do yeah. you see that taking taking root uh, beyond just um this wonderful world of firefighters sure i i think about it this way and i think um um and, and you have to have, a, I think, a, a kind of a short historical perspective. I think our parents uh, came through the Depression and the Second World War. Incredibly traumatic events, right? Mm-hmm. Shaped their lives. And especially, I think, of the, the servicemen and women who came back from Europe and Japan. And they came back to the 50s. All they wanted was peace, right? Mm-hmm. All they wanted, that they had dreamt about for the past five years um, was having a home, a family, and a simple life. Uh, they were, and we don't talk about this a lot in terms of Second World War, but there mm-hmm. was an enormous amount of trauma, an enormous amount of trauma. And uh, I have a friend uh, who did a study of a battalion in, uh, that fought uh, in, in the Pacific. And, and she interviewed them in their 60s and 70s. And, 99% of them had woken up in the middle of the night and tried to kill their wives. Hmm. Right. Um, and this is what we call PTSD, but mm-hmm. they didn't talk about it then. So I always think about that generation, uh, you know, thank God that they could have a simple life. They could raise a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, they deserve nothing more and then to retire. Right. Um, and I, I, I totally get that. We're completely different. We are a completely different generation. Um, and I, I think, you know, baby boomers and then the generations coming after us. Um, they, that generation, the, the World War II, II generation had an incredible meaning in their life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they turned the whole country on a dime and said, we have to defeat fascism. We have to defeat the Japanese in order to save the country. What an enormous, uh, incredible mission, right? Um, we, I think, have struggled uh, for, to have, have meaning in our lives at that level. I think we crave it. Um, I think we're getting a, a kind of an inkling of it now. Um, but so it's a little different for us. I think, I think as individuals, we're kind of uh, realizing that, that, um, that the hole in our lives, the existential hole in our lives, sometimes is that we don't have meaning. We don't have that big cause, Right. Uh, obviously, you know, you, you're generalizing when you talk about generational differences because there's a lot of people with, with enormous cause in their lives right now. Mm-hmm. But a lot of us are going like, is this what my life is about? Right. Is, is this is this it? And, and what's missing is that that uh, that sense of meaning, that sense of purpose that that other generations have had. I want to ask you a little bit more about that, because uh, this is topical to both the current political and social situation that, uh, and I noticed this in California, uh, there's 
this kind of tendency for people who are on the kind of a far far left side and progressive and sort of uh, holistic to get into conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the sp- conspiracy theories start to warp around to being the same theories that the people on the right have. I know. <laughs> and and it feels to me like the uh, a root cause of this is exactly what you're describing, which mm-hmm. is when people don't have meaning, then that mind wants to uh, fill in the space. Absolutely. And a conspiracy theory is just that. It's a way to give a as if sense of meaning because sure. I have a, I now have the secret or I have, a, or I create a cause where a yep. cause doesn't exist. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think there's two reasons. There's, there's a desire for meaning and there's the desire for explanation. Right. Um, and I think right now, if you, if you think about just the amount of information that comes flooding at us, right, that's disconnected. Um, that makes no sense. I mean, the, uh, um, I think people want to have stuff, have, have it make sense. And of course it doesn't make sense. What in life does make sense? It's just absurd, but, but we can't, um, we can't live with that. So we will try to come up with theories and narrations that make sense, even if they're crazy, because it, it makes us feel safer. It makes us feel part of something. Um, and we don't need facts. Uh, clearly, human beings don't need facts to, to to live their lives and to help explain things. Yeah, and I think the the sense I see is you know getting back to necessity is that crisis creates necessity, mm-hmm. and of, often if if these tendencies don't go unchecked, or if they go unchecked, then uh, uh, nature has a way of creating crises in oh, yeah. order to return yeah. a sense of meaning. Yeah, absolutely. And to some extent, we might understand the current pandemic as part of that. But even that is not uh, uh, influencing every, you know, <laughs> in some ways it's made things worse because now people are just disconnected from each other. And Yeah, uh, I know. I know. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think I think two things. I think, you know, what we live in the world. We don't live on the world. We are organisms, right? We are affected by... We're, we're, we're biological organisms and we are affected by everything on the planet. It's, it's one system and, and we forget that at our, at our peril and we're forgetting it now. Um, and I think, the, I think the other thing is that we're designed to be communal, community animals. We're designed to be in tribes. That's how our brains work. That's um, how, we're, how we evolved. And we, and we forget that at our peril. And the idea of being these ind- you know, individual lone rangers... Um, who can take care of themselves and don't have to wear masks because no one can tell me what to do um, is, is insane. And uh, this is my, my little dog joined us. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, always has an opinion, um, but, but it's, it's an insane way to live. And I think, uh, is, it, is, is, is the dog's opinion fact-based? It is absolutely. Dogs are absolutely fact-based. I want to eat. I want to walk. I want to <laughs> well, well, I, I appreciate you bringing the, this point up. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more about the the individualism ideology and its it, its um, its overextension mm. and the consequences of that for for 
as you say, the pandemic, but but for many other areas of life. Mm -hmm. But you also in the book, you know, mentioned social media. Mm -hmm. And 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 to me, this is a really interesting area. So so it's like um, I find some aspects of social media help me stay in touch with people who were my tribe once, like from grad school. Yep. yep. That sort of thing. Uh, or relatives who live in a different part of the country that I yep. where I don't see them very often. And yet it's also, I mean, I've trained myself to just ignore all the rest of it <laughs> that comes yeah. along with yeah. that. Yeah. And I'm, one, I'm wondering, um, um, and you, and my, in the book, you talk a lot about this, this tribal network of support of people that you see and spend time with Mm -hmm. and they they can take you to lunch or you take them to lunch when, when they need to talk or just, or just have another person present who under, who has some inkling of what they're going through. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a couple things. I think um, the fire department is a tribe and uh, a good fire department is a really healthy tribe. And we, we take care of each other. And so uh, on a couple instances where, where I was going off the deep end, all of a sudden I would be getting phone calls. You know, can you come to lunch? Can you come down to the station and help us inventory uh, hose line? I mean, they would just take care of me. Um, and it wasn't anything formal. It wasn't anything, um, uh, you know, like I felt um, embarrassed by. It was just people watching out for me. And, I, and that was such a powerful experience. Um, and right now, it's so, we don't have that. We have it via social media uh, and by phone, but we don't have the physical contact that we need as humans to take care of each other. Um, and I think that's, that's going to have long-lasting uh, repercussions. You're talking in particular about the pandemic right now, yeah, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. But I think it goes beyond that, too, because um, I, I think the pandemic has intensified this, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. But even before the pandemic, I, I think a lot of people are, I mean, the, the incident, I'm trying to remember the specifics, it's been a while, uh, but the, the sense of people being and feeling alone mm. and the number of people who respond to surveys by saying, I don't even have a friend I can talk yeah, to I know. I know. is, is um, appalling. Really, in England, they have a new minister, the Minister of Loneliness. Mm. Which they, I, yes, I read that. They appointed in 2018 because there was such an epidemic of loneliness in England that they saw it as a, a real health crisis. Right. So, um, so in many ways, this um, <laughs> I mean, you 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 invite people to check out joining volunteer fire departments, and mm-hmm. but one of the one ah. of the reasons. To do that might be might be somewhat selfish, even though you're you're pushing service. Um, when people feel a healthy joy in life, they are uh, not just serving themselves but serving others as well, because yeah. someone someone's someone who's who's manifesting that and demonstrating that in their life. Um, um, serves as a beacon for others, it seems to me. Yeah, I think so. And I think we meet those people um, 
and, and they definitely have a different perspective. Um, and I, I remember this one guy who joined, Ed Hostler is his name, and he joined the fire department when he was 67, right? Hmm. He said he had joined the Red Cross because he needed to do something and serve and help. He said, but that was way too boring. So he, joined, <laughs> so he quit the Red Cross and joined the fire department. And I remember uh, we were doing a training after about six months of him being in the department. And he got to run an engine for the first time. And he just exulted. This is the best job ever, right? And he was so excited at, you know, at 67 years old to be doing something new that he knew he could, uh, that would be helpful to others, but was so fulfilling to him. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, the Ed's of the world, I mean, Ed did things like he helped rebuild churches. He was just the guy that would always go to help somebody and, and always looking for community things to do. And, and you could see it in his attitude. And you could see in, in, in his just approach to life that he was pretty happy. He was pretty mm. happy as a human being. Uh, and I think there's a lesson there. I think that, that, um, that we need to be in community. And I write about that in the book, that we, are, we need to be in community. We have to let go a little bit of the Lone Ranger mythology because the Lone Ranger was a myth. Um, and, and kind of find community wherever we can find it. And, and really focus on, on being external to the world, being out there helping in the world. So, so the book is certainly one way in which you are getting this message out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's a great act of service at a different level uh, mm-hmm. in that it's uh, trying to draw people's attention to a possibility. I'm interested in your, your diagnosis today. Like, how do we, how do we move the needle on this awareness in our society, because we have uh, several generations that are moving through this kind of existential crisis, and uh, their forms of moving through it is either to be in denial, to be in polarized uh, la-la land, or yeah. uh, uh, just to turn their backs and focus on the happiness problem. Yeah, I think, um, and I was—I've been thinking about this all day. It's like how. Can I get? How can I get more involved um, at a personal level? What can I be doing differently now? Because I think we're in in I think uh, a crisis, not the worst crisis in our history, but a crisis that we've never experienced before. Mm-hmm. That's that's quite different. So, you know, I've been tearing my hair out about how can I help, uh, given the fact that I have to stay at home, <laughs> right. and and what are the things that we can do? to really help. I think my sense is that a lot of people are in that same boat that, that want to help, but don't know how to help that mm-hmm. want to get involved, but don't know how to get involved. Uh, you can't go out and March. Um, but so how do we do that? So I think that's an open question. Um, and again, I think I, I talk about it a little bit in the book that uh, it's like grieving. It's like, Everybody has their own way they grieve. There is no one way. There is no path. Everybody's path is different. And I think, I think part of the response, part of the reaction to what we're going through now is a grieving process. Um, I think people know that we're not going back to the way it was. You never do because life just goes forward. So we're not going back to January of 2020. It's going to be different. And I think people are grieving that. 
and they don't know how to act. They don't know how to respond to that yet. It hasn't. It ha- we haven't come together yet to figure out how to go forward. Yeah, I mean, it's also kind of exacerbated now in the, uh, in, like we were describing uh, before we started recording, the in Northern California, on top of a pandemic, now we have uh, uh, really extreme uh, wildfires that are uh, becoming the new normal. You know, <clears throat> yeah. every every year there's yeah. a crisis where people yeah. have to be prepared to evacuate their homes and yeah. and uh, places that have seemed to have a stability for decades suddenly are literally up in flames. And, yeah, <clears throat> and there's that, and then there's the economic uncertainty. And, yeah. uh, and so we have all of these elements that uh, uh, we can't hold on to. Yeah, <laughs> you know, every, everything's changing. And, and, and again, I kind of go back to the message in your book that uh, there's something else that we can focus on. And I think if I were to uh, distill it down, it's that idea of focusing on service and the lived body reality of service transforms our relationship to our lives. I think that's well said. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that the thing you learn, and Albert Camus, of all people, talked about this in The Plague, uh, his novel, which I'm, I'm just reading, going to reread, because uh, I just like to punish myself. But <laughs> <laughs> You're reading it in the French? The original. Right, right, right. right, right. <laughs> I, it's amazing the things you had to read you, you read it in French class in college and you have no idea what it was about. I have no clue. Um, but it was like, it's like a plague comes and, and changes uh, the lives of everybody uh, like we're going through now. But the fact is on an individual level, that's how life is. Mm-hmm. That's how life is. Um, you don't get through life without tragedy. You don't get through life without grief. It's just not possible. Um, and, and they don't teach you in school. Uh, that this is going to be so, uh, they don't. They don't. Uh, they don't. They don't teach anything important in school, right? Right. <laughs> if you think about it. Um, and these are the things we need to know so that we're ready for it. We're, we're ready for the fact that our plans don't work. Uh, we're ready for the fact that that there's going to be tremendous change in our lives. Um, that we're going to be heartbroken. That uh, our parents are going to die, um, and that we'll get we'll get through that. None of us. We're not taught that. And those are the things that we should be taught. I mean, I think in tribal societies, you were taught that kind of stuff. But in our Western industrial uh, world, it doesn't fit into the fact that what we're training people to do is to work in factories, right? Yeah. And to be on time and, and to listen to the boss in the front of the classroom. And I think it, um, the, the important stuff about life we're not taught. And that's something we need to change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I see the some of the wisdom from spiritual traditions, uh, uh, even if you extract it from bigger questions, offers so many approaches. Just, just like we were talking about, uh, how do you learn to stay in the uh, hula hoop? How do you, how do you right. learn to uh, manage self-talk? All of these things are, uh, you know, there are ways to address those. I mean, I, I, uh, when we talk to people who are involved in programs that introduce meditation to uh, schools, they can actually see that the stress, stress levels for people go down. The yeah. perform, per, yeah. performance goes up and yeah. it's like it, it offers a tool for how do you respond to these times? 
Yep, absolutely. Well, I, I want to change the, the tone of the conversation for, for just a moment here because uh, your Chapter 5 title is Cowboy Kicked by Dead Cow. <laughs> and, and, and so I'd, I'd like you to, to speak about humor here for, yeah. oh, for a moment. Oh, yeah, I've been thinking about that today. Um, I think, I think uh, humor is the anecdote to grief. Um, and, and, and it's the, it's the anecdote to the dark universe you kind of live in. And in the fire service, um, we are known for having a dark sense of humor as a shield, uh, against what we experience every day. And it's, it's a sense of humor that we don't share except amongst the people in the department, right? Cause it's very dark and it can be very offensive, but it's how we, uh, survive, how we mentally survive. So um, and there's this great paper written by Margaret Hagland, who talks about kind of the six keys to um, helping prevent stress and prevent PTSD. And one of her, her third point is uh, being optimistic and having a sense of humor as, as vital to who we are mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and how, we can, how we can manage to not just survive, but to kind of thrive. Um, so what I did in the chapter was, you know, firefighters don't nef- necessarily have to be funny because what we see every day is just ridiculous, uh, and absurd. Um, and so what I, what I, what I tried to talk about was that if, depending on how we look at life, right, if we kind of concede the absurdity and the funniness that's out there all the time, every day, and we can incorporate that into, um, kind of our view of the world. It'll help us stay out more optimistic and help us uh, have a little more enjoyment, even when things are really dark. And I, I don't think it's, I, I'm one of those people who, no matter how dark um, things are, there's, I've, I've always been able to find something humorous. And sometimes I don't share it, but I, I'm certainly looking for those kinds of situations. Well, that makes sense. Um, and also it seems to me that, that um, you have another chapter title, uh, Be Kind. And um, uh, my own experience is, is that I can be kind when I've, I have a sense of uh, balance about and mm. larger context in my life, which, which a sense of humor helps promote. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so that, so that's important. Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm okay. So I'm on this, uh, this theme about your, your very evocative uh, chapter titles. And, um, so the last, your, your last, so the book is divided into five parts and each part has like four or five or whatever, um, chapters in it. Mm-hmm. So your, um, um, your final part five has these chapter titles, be brave, be kind, be useful, belong, be tough. And then finally, the blue hazed prairie, which is, of course, your uh, uh, reference to a uh, Carl Sandburg uh, uh, poem. Right. Can, can, right. You talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it was, um, I think, a, a very, not just the poem you quote, but it was your poetic sort of pulling together of many threads skillfully at the end of the book. So, um, 
so talk about the blue hazed prairie and how that how that's relevant to what we've been talking about in this conversation today. Sure. So the the poem and I can't remember exactly, but it is about uh, all these people on a train, and we're going um, speeding through the Midwest prairies, and he mentions that. All, everybody on the train turned to dust and the aluminum will turn to rust. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, right. I mean, I can, I can quote it here. Oh, sure. Great. Because um, I am riding on a limited express, one of the cracked trains of the nation, hurtling across the prairie into blue haze and dark air, go 15 all steel coaches holding a thousand people. And then in parenthesis, all the coaches shall be scrap and rust, and all the men and women laughing in the diners and sleepers shall pass to ashes. Close parenthesis. I ask a man in the smoker where he's going, and he answers, Omaha. Right. So, so you've got the, uh, uh, the blue haze and the prairies, and then you've got Omaha. Talk, talk about that distinction that you draw. Sure. So all of us think we're on the train to go to Omaha. To a destination. To a destination. We have plans. Yeah, we have plans. Um, and, so, and our plans and where we want to go get in the way of where we are right now. Hmm. All we have right now, all we have is right now. There's no promise of tomorrow. The past is gone. Um, all we have is this... And that's a very, very important mindfulness concept that we need to grasp, that all we have is the now. Um, so it struck me, and I think the poem is about the, the folly of thinking that we're going to Omaha, and that's, that's the most important thing. And what I always thought about that, the first thing when I first read it, is that what I want to do is press my face against the glass and just take in the Blue Haze Prairie, to just be in the moment of seeing, and, the, and the, the, the words, the blue haze prairie, just capture for me the beauty of the now, of what right now is. And I sit in my kitchen, in our kitchen, and I look out through um, the trees and I see our red gate and our, our garden, right? And it is just a beautiful moment. It's just a beautiful moment of now that, that, that just captures uh, all I really have, all I really have. That and the love of my family. Those are the things that, that all, that's all we have. And, and, and to kid ourselves that we're going to Omaha or that Omaha is that important uh, gets in the way of our, our being present in the moment. Thank you. So um, you, uh, in, in, the, in your uh, the bio biographical notes, um, it uh, mentions that you have in addition to being a firefighter mm. and early on being a dancer, et cetera, mm. um, that, that you've um, uh, worked extensively with leadership teams through a variety of organizations. And I'm wondering if that's been a venue for you to bring a lot of the wisdom that's in this book, Firefighters On, um, to groups in a different way. And if so, uh, tell us about it. Sure. So I think um, the leadership conversation uh, is a really crucial conversation right now. Uh, and I, and I, when I put in my business hat and my organizational hat, it's hysterical because I just wrote a paper um, for 
a large uh, Fortune 100 company, uh, up, and this was in, you know, and they accepted it in December of 2019. You have to be very clear here. And it's all about disruption. <laughs> <laughs> it was about how our economy is, is being disrupted, how their industry is being disrupted, and how how leaders had to be managers of uh, they had to be leaders of leading organizations through disruption and and, and creating um, a, a new approach and a new economy. And then the pandemic happened, and all my work <laughs> went away. But it was pretty ironic that we had just written the paper about what happened. So. But what we work on is um, with leaders is this kind of the same idea is that you have to be leading for the right reason, right? You're there to serve people, not be served. You're mm-hmm. there to take an organization forward, not make, just make money. Um, and that kindness as a leader uh, is always paid back. Uh, and, and kind of our concept of being the tough boss who keeps his door closed and never talks to people, but shouts out orders is a ridiculous way to lead a group of people. Because we talk about um, there's no such thing as an organization. There's no such thing, right, except in the minds of lawyers and accountants. What any organization is, is just a group of people. Uh, it's no matter how large it is. And, and to lead, to be a good leader, it's about understanding people, understanding how to motivate people, understanding how to take care and help people. And you look at some of the best leaders um, today, those are the, they, that's, that's who they are. And so we kind of, that's the kind of stuff we teach and work, work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that in some cases, uh, <clears throat> businesses are a context in which these ideas can uh, come to the fore. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's funny to see, I, I uh, work in a, a corporate environment in a, for yeah. a, a large manufacturing uh, corporation, a multinational, and they're you know, the, among other things, there's a big focus on safety. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, like they, uh, for several years, they've had the idea that safety, not only is it just the right thing to do for the people, but, uh, you know, uh, it also creates a better business environment. Uh, yeah. But, but as a result of that focus, uh, when the COVID came along, uh, the organization was able to stay in business but instant but use safety as the basis for yeah. getting people to really uh be attentive to what was going on and be safe yeah. and and yeah. uh have protocols in place to deal with yeah. and i was i've been impressed by that because it's uh you know it's like very good behavior you know uh, the kind of behavior that you'd like to uh see in society was being promoted in this uh corporate context yeah, and, and and the same the same uh, uh, focus is on things like the virtues that we're describing. You know, wisdom, compassion, and mm-hmm. and nothing's ever perfect in the business world because right. obviously yeah. uh, there's a constraint. Well, nothing's ever perfect well, anywhere. It's, it's so, like yeah. life, you know. Because yeah. if you, if you don't if you don't eat, then you die, and right. that's true. Yeah. That's true in business. Yeah, and yet and yet, while you're eating, you can also be kind. You can Absolutely. be wise. And, right. Yeah. And I see that message getting through in some contexts. And um, I guess I don't, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, uh, I, I'm, I'm just really interested in how, how does that message get out in other contexts? How do, how do, how do people in the, the, realm, the, the ranks of social media uh, start to be more 
present to uh, what's happening, as you say. Yeah. I, I saw a, um, my problem with social media is when the pandemic happened, I became addicted to social media. Yeah. Uh, and it was really bad. And my, my uh, daughter and my wife finally had to take my phone away. <laughs> I just, it was just like, I need to know now what's happening. I don't right. want to miss anything. Right. Um, fortunately, that's, I've gotten better. Um, but I saw a, a good post today that's, that really talked about how we should do social media. And it was things like, be kind, be fair, check your sources, right? Um, all those kinds of simple things. So I think there's a way to approach social media in a much more intelligent, honest, and rational way. And, and all we can really do is say, what am I going to do differently? How am I going to act differently? Um, and, and then project that into social, how, we, how we appear on social media, which apparently is our stage right now. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's the challenge is, is, is some of the ways of being that you're describing can be taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that uh, from uh, wisdom traditions of all uh, kinds. We of also course. know that from what, you're desc- you, what you describe in your experience in the uh, firefighting world. Mm-hmm. These things can be taught. Yep. Uh, but how do, we, how do we promote the teaching of that? Yeah. Because uh, and, of, yeah, go ahead. No, go, please. I was going to say it starts with me. Uh, it starts how I, I, I show up in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and to kind of reinforce that kind of behavior. I mean, one of the things I've learned is that um, one of the ways we can help is that people often are so insecure about who they are or what their positions are or whether they're creative that just kind words, even if, even if something they write, for example, which I work in a lot, isn't great. You still can be kind about it. You can still grasp something that's good and say, keep going, right? Keep trying, right? Keep working, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. And I think the same thing applies to how we approach um, other people in the world. I think you know, it's like, um, um, uh, what's her name? Diary of Anne Frank. Anne Frank said in one of her last diary entries that she said, I still believe that people are good. Right? Mm-hmm. I still believe that. And I think um, if, we, if we hold that thought that people are still good, they're basically good, that people are most often afraid or angry, um, but they're basically good. And we can reinforce who they are. We can tell them they're doing great work. We can tell them that their message, if it's about kindness and about loving, uh, that you need to get, you need, we need to hear your voice. And if we constantly can be telling people that, I think we can magnify the effect we have on the world. Yeah, one of the, one of the practices that I adopted years ago for, for Facebook, for example, was if, if I'm going to respond to a post that I see, I never, I only discursively write something. Mm-hmm. I never do the little emoticon or whatever, right. Or, right. or the, or the up, you know, up or down or right, right. likes. Sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. You don't I, even know the I, name. I don't even know the name of what I'm not doing. That, that, that was right. proof of your uh, commitment. Right. That's the, because, because, because to me, if it's worth saying something, it's worth saying something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if it's worth responding to, it's worth taking the time and trouble to respond yeah. to. I'd rather I'd rather not respond if it's going to, if it's just some mechanical thing. And that t- seems to me that, in a sense, that's a kind of analog to the advice you give in Firefighter Zone, 
about this the self thinking yeah. um, because um if we're just thinking mechanically essentially um or responding on facebook mechanically yeah um because it's quick and we yeah. don't have and we don't have to invest ourselves into it right and then we're continuing to create a world that that doesn't um that's not alive in the in yes. the way that you in this book tell us about how firefighters have to show up as right. really alive mm-hmm. i mean you don't yes. you don't put it that way in the book i'm right. putting it that way now yeah that's great but I'm, well i'm glad i'm glad it resonates for you yeah definitely <laughs> definitely definitely yeah 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 i mean that's i just say again that's kind of like as if as as if kindness is to hit a like and and real kindness involves the body yeah so yep. like like the, this one of the the story in that chapter that uh on kindness that struck me is that you're i guess you're walking out of some building with a uh, a friend or a colleague and there's a homeless guy drunk in the middle of a parking lot and you know and i think of myself in that situation you know usually a rationalization comes up or i think about something mm-hmm. else or i mm-hmm. turn my attention away mm-hmm. not my problem and this guy right. you're with walks over kind of wakes the guy up and says hey hey friend it, uh, it's not safe for you to go to sleep right here right the guy kind of shambles up and walks off to another place right and yet that was such a, a beautiful example of kindness but yeah what made it so powerful was it was body to body yeah and yeah. and i think that's that's the the challenge we face right now in the being uh, sh- sheltered in place is our bodies need to be with other bodies <clears throat> absolutely and, absolutely and you you described that so beautifully in the the many acts of heroism and friendship and camaraderie in the book um I do want to ask we're we're starting to approach the end of our time together but one one of the things I wanted to ask is that you make a great case for being a volunteer firefighter uh <laughs> and I I'll be honest with you I, yeah. I I I would never have thought about doing that and sure. the juxtaposition of reading this book and the fires that are breaking out and when I see mm-hmm. the uh, uh articles and the the live feeds of the, the people who are going out there or Rob goes to the gym and sees the uh the young guys who are all volunteer firefighters I see that in a new light and I actually see mm-hmm. that as a like yeah I'd like to be out there too I want to sure. I want to help in this situation but there's other ways for people to help too you know yep. like I, I was thinking about uh hospice you know as a uh oh, yes. you know, that 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 kept coming up for me in uh, the yeah. early part of the book um, yeah. and I'm just wondering what you you know what you've seen and you know where what you describe in the book where where you have seen other volunteer opportunities for people uh that might create some of the same uh uh opportunities sure. for joy sure I, I think uh hospice is uh difficult but a tremendous service uh volunteering in hospice um i think the other place where i mean um showing one of our passions here is that uh we work in animal shelters our family works in an animal shelter a lot or we, we did until all this happened um and and helping there is in, very fulfilling it's hard but it's very fulfilling um i think things like working in schools as volunteers um working you know finding where your habitat for humanity 
Uh, I mean, I think there are all kinds of opportunities like that if you just kind of look for them. Yeah. Well, I think the if, if uh, a message I, I certainly take from this conversation, and it's particularly true for people who might be uh, retired or uh, part-time workers and things like mm-hmm. that, is that uh, there is this path. There's uh, uh, volunteering, just putting yourself in the position of giving to someone else is you know, probably is worth uh, thousands upon thousands of hours of sitting on a cushion in a meditation room in the sense that yeah. it, it, yeah, that's it a good way to put it develops, particularly for uh, what we would call the emotional center. I mean, it, it opens up the heart yeah. and, and it, and in that opening comes uh, the joy that you're describing. Yeah. I think that's lovely, a lovely way to put it. I think the idea of um, opening up the heart is really what we're talking about. I think to the extent that we can help people open their hearts, understand the world through their hearts, uh, will make a profound difference in a lot of people's lives. And lead to actions of compassion, as yeah. we were talking about earlier, yeah. from the quote in your book. Yeah. Yeah, and I think from that, uh, 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 the more the more we can do that uh, in small ways and in big ways, I think that that, that is the creates that transformational moment. And yep. I, I, I certainly can be optimistic about that myself because, um, you know, the American story is one of, as you, you said earlier, there, there we have these moments, uh, we have revival moments, we have uh, moments of great experimentation and moments right. of great, great generosity. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some of the most generous acts uh, in, uh, hist- in the history of nation states have come uh, out of the American experience, yeah, which, which is not to deny some of the most heinous acts too. But no, uh, exactly right. Yeah, but that generosity is there, and it's part of uh, who we are in this country, and that that's that can be rekindled. And yes. What I love about your book is that it's a it really is a demonstration of that, and that cuts across all lines of people, all walks of life. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think you have to be optimistic and see the possibilities that, that we can be who we want to be. Um, we need to work at it, but we need to believe that can happen. Well, um, we're getting close to the end of our uh, discussion. And uh, so this is a good time to invite you to tell us about new projects that you may be working on. Uh, also, uh, of course, we'll we'll uh, uh, attach to the podcast uh, your um, your website hirschwilson.com, dot com for people Great. to find whatever you also. But uh, anything we should look forward to in the future? Sure. What I've been doing is I've been doing uh, uh, five minute videos every week about how we can thrive through the pandemic. Oh, and, awesome! And so they're on my website hirschwilson.com. dot com. Um, I am um, working on. I, I think it's time, and so I'm going to play my cards here. I think it's time to be very involved politically right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, I think it's, I think, you know, I, everybody tries to come from not wanting to get into politics, but, uh, or like never talk about politics and religion. I think we're past that now. I think we have to be politically involved. <laughs> so I think what I want to also start doing is just writing politically for the next uh, couple of months. So those are the two things I'm focused on. I'm working on a novel, but I'm going to push that off for a while and, and focus on these tasks. Well, the, the thing I'll say about the uh, 
of politics is uh, that you demonstrate in the book that it's possible to be present to what is. And the most powerful political writing to me, I think, is one that is positive, points a direction, acknowledges yeah. what is, but doesn't make people wrong. Yeah, I know. Exactly right. Exactly right. And we need uh, and both. We absolutely need more voices like that. And yeah, uh, yeah. The effectiveness of what uh, you wrote, particularly the powerful anecdotes which open up someone's heart as you read them, uh, is transformative. And the more right. that you can get that out there, uh, the yeah. better for us all. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> well, awesome. we really appreciate you taking yeah. the time with us. Uh, oh, it was uh, a great discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's, it's our, our our pleasure. I, I really, really liked the firefighters. Then it, oh, it's thanks. it's it's a. I mean, I, I'll just say it's it's a it's not just profound in 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 some very helpful ways, but it's a great read. Yeah, I mean, it's oh, it's it's really yeah. um, it's a it's a it's it's a page turner. Yeah, it's a page yeah. turner. And, <laughs> and thank you. You know, sometimes in our show we get uh, very. Uh, uh, abstruse and uh, you know into uh, <laughs> yeah. all sorts of technical detail and spiritual matters, and it's really refreshing just to have a demonstration of the the lived experience of the wisdom of the ages, you know, in the body, yeah. in the world, in the right. moment. Thank you. So, thank so you. Thank you. Thank you again. And we yeah. look forward to further conversations. Absolutely. Yes. Anytime. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Hirsch Wilson, author of Firefighter Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times. Hirsch is a 30-year veteran volunteer firefighter EMT with the Hondo Fire Department in Santa Fe County, New Mexico. He is also a storyteller committed to explaining how first responding can change how we see and experience our own lives. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.